Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Vastek. Picture the first it girl, and you're likely to imagine young, fun Clara Bow, sex symbol of the Roaring Twenties. But behind the frame is the woman who wrote it, Eleanor Glynn, an English gentlewoman turned Hollywood screenwriter whose romantic novels inspired so much of the era's glamorous aesthetic. Hilary Hallett, a professor of history at Columbia University, brings Glynn back into the spotlight in her new biography, Inventing the It Girl. Glynn's story, like that of so many of her heroines, and unlike her contemporaries, begins after her marriage in 1892 to a spendthrift noble with a gambling problem. Their ensuing money problems pushed her to write, and the blockbuster success of her scandalous 1907 sex novel, Three Weeks, catapulted her to literary stardom, and as it so often does, to Hollywood, where she worked on dozens of films and styled silent-era superstars like Rudolph Valentino and Gloria Swanson. Hilary Hallett joins the podcast to discuss how Eleanor Glynn paved the way for a century of sexual, romantic, and psychological independence. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Hilary. Thank you, Stephanie, for that lovely introduction. I'm really delighted to be here. Well, speaking of introductions, in yours you say that it's no exaggeration to say that all modern romance falls under the shadow cast by Eleanor Glynn's chic silhouette. That is quite the statement. Well, she really deserves credit, and many, many people gave it to her in the earlier part of the 20th century for reorienting the romance genre toward the subject of sex, essentially. Not just, you know, describing, you know, sex in more detail than had previously been permissible, um, sort of by Anglo-American literary codes. But she also is the first to really grapple with the important role that sort of sexual chemistry and compatibility plays in a relationship. You know, some of her novels are actually some of the first books that are called bestsellers, um, and so it is this moment in the publishing industry right at the turn of the 20th century uh, or the 19th to the 20th century. The publishing industry is growing dramatically. And these new books that are being written by authors like Eleanor Glynn are a huge part of why it's expanding. Right. It's this um, reorientation that Glenn really sets up in these books that make and explain why the romance genre is the best-selling genre of the 20th century. And so it's, it's the subject matter, but then it's also the look, the feel, right? What will get called the kind of mise-en-scene when she's in Hollywood. This is something that's always really, really crucial to Glenn as a writer, uh, she loves describing people's clothes and the gorgeous settings they inhabit. You know, her older sister is this very famous uh, Edwardian couturier named Lucille, Lady Lucy Duff Gordon. And, and so she really grows up, right, as Lucille's little sister, even before learning the importance of style, right, uh, and of how women present themselves to their success in the world which isn't a new, you know, 
idea exactly. Um, you know, but what is new is a kind of willingness to use that in service of, you know, first of all, sort of more sexual freedom. Um, and then second of all, you know, professional success. It is notable, though, that she doesn't start there. You know, English gentry is not exactly what right. you think of when you think of, you know, someone who becomes a sexual trailblazer. So, right. I mean, how does this woman who, as you say, was bred only for a respectable marriage, which she did get, turn into such a rebel and somebody who was ultimately sort of disdained by her high society, even though everybody was reading her books? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. You know, one of the things I loved about her story was that it reverses the typical marriage plot. So mm -hmm. she succeeds. She's bred for respectable marriage. She marries up the social ladder without a dowry, which was a very hard thing to do. She succeeds. And then, you know, this is where I begin with her making the catch and doing what she's bred to do. And then it all crumbles. The marriage is unhappy. Her sex life, from what we know of it, with her husband Clayton was unhappy. She has, you know, a very difficult childbirth, like many women of that era. She comes close to dying, you know, and so she wins, but yet she finds herself depressed. Um, and the thing that does give her happiness is this milieu that she has married up into, right? And the friendships that she starts to make in it. Um, and that terrain, as you say, right, that's what first provides her, you know, with her first professional successes, right? She writes this, her first book, which is not scandalous. Um, it is a book that very discreetly speaks to, you know, people's interest in what goes on behind closed doors among the aristocratic high society set. And since she's married into this and she becomes best friends with the Countess of Warwick, who is this, you know, a very celebrated hostess of the era, um, the mistress of Prince Edward when Glenn meets her, right? So she's, she's married and become friends with this very aristocratic set. And her first books, which she writes really to sort of get out of her depression and her illness, are about that. They're about telling society, you know, about um, what's going on, like I said, behind these closed doors. But they do it in so light a way that you have to know what she's talking about to realize that what she's talking about is the fact that married women routinely have affairs in the society, right? To realize that men are always on the lookout um, for extramarital entanglements. You know, the sort of naughtiness that was really quite pervasive, despite, you know, the example of Queen Victoria for a half century to the otherwise, right? And so circulating in that milieu and sort of watching it, but not entirely participating in terms of what I could find out from my research. She was an enormous flirt, but didn't seem to consummate her more serious flirtations uh, until she met the great love of her life, right, which is somewhat later um, in 1908, after the publication of the book you mentioned, the scandalous book, right? Three Weeks, which she publishes in 1907, which is kind of like a Fifty Shades of Grey of its day in terms of its notoriety and celebrity. That is such a good way to describe it. It is really important to situate it at the time because you hear sex novel and you're like, my goodness, this Edwardian woman was writing pornography. Why? Yeah. Um, but that's not actually the case. So what is a sex novel? And what about it was like too scandalous for Glynn's society to stand? 
So sex novel was a term that was invented by reporters around, you know, 1900 uh, to describe a, a, a number of books, not just by Glenn, but by other authors, some of whom, you know, we still know today. H.G. Wells is, you know, one of the famous ones um, and others that, that grappled with aspects typically of female sexuality and independence. Uh, if, you know, if we think back to the early 1900s, this is a period, you know, in which the first women's movement was very strong, when something called feminism, you know, first appears on the landscape, when everyone's talking about this idea of the new woman. And one of the things that's associated with the new woman is more sexual freedom than women had been permitted before. Um, birth control is obviously part of what's starting to make this possible, too. Uh, women are having fewer children for a variety of reasons. You know, they have more time. You know, these sex novels engage some aspect of that whole, what was called the woman question debate. In this case, in Glenn's case, the aspect of that debate that she engages, which was so incendiary at the time, was whether or not women should be permitted to have sex outside of marriage if they are unhappily wed. So, you know, is monogamy really for life? Uh, knowing in society at the time, as everyone did, that men were not monogamous for life. That was accepted. But women had been expected to be in public, as we said. And so she writes this book where she believes, to some extent, that the upper class setting and the miserableness of the heroine's marriage um, justifies, you know, the actions of the heroine, right? Which are to take this younger lover this young aristocratic English man, and to really school him for the three weeks in the arts of love, right? She wants to teach him to be the perfect lover that she has not had. It's a whole long seduction, flirtation scene. And, and those also, that's where some of the mise-en-scene that we, I was talking about, where she really first develops it, right? This whole iconography of seduction, the negligee, you know, which her sister literally invented, undergarments are now becoming as important as outer garments for the first time. You know, the rose petals on the bed, the rose clenched between the teeth. You know, this very seductive heroine who gets nicknamed the Tiger Queen because she really performs, you know, what seems to me, and I think many other readers, to be a scene of sort of self-pleasuring for her lover on the back of this giant Siberian cat. Uh, you know, and this explains this famous photograph of Glenn posed, right, with one of these giant Siberian cat heads and the doggerel that was, you know, reputedly written by George Bernard Shaw about her. Would you like to sin with Eleanor Glenn on a tiger skin or would you prefer to err with her on some other fur? And so there's a slippage, right, that the, the doggerel shows it's starting to happen between her tiger queen heroine and her persona as a celebrity author. Because mm -hmm. it's also the fact that she does embrace the celebrity and the notoriety that comes along with this with this book in a way that I think even E.L. James did not, right? Mm -hmm. In a way that many women authors do not. She is not shamed down. She figures out a way to really use that notoriety and turn herself into a celebrity author, really like no other female author had done while they were alive up until that point. And then also really the subtext is that the book is so incendiary because it makes clear that the current sexual practices of most Anglo-Saxons are not satisfying to women. 
<laughs> and, you know, and this is something that a lot of the, the reviewers and critics point out, right, that she's trying to spread French ideas or Orientalist decadent ideas is the other thing she's charged with. That these are not good Anglo-Saxon virtues, you know, that it's teaching young, impressionable, working class girls that, as one reviewer says, that they can pursue the life of sin Despite the way she was treated by the aristocracy, Glenn had this complete, almost reverence for that world, really all her life. Despite the fact that they turned their back on her for, you know, publishing this book that exposed things that they all did, then they were, you know, royal hypocrites, we could say. She still had a reverence for their style, I think is a lot of what it came down to. (laughs) I mean, it sounds very superficial and it is a little, you know, although I love, there's one of my favorite quotes from her is she said, you know, I really get on well only with aristocrats from all countries and the low classes who work. (laughs) They're just as good as the aristocrats almost. Because, you know, she did really, you know, if we segue into Hollywood here, she did really get on well with the Hollywood folks who were from this entirely different milieu than the one that she inhabited really for the first two acts of her life. I want to jump to that third act because, oh my goodness, there's just as much to talk about in terms of her Hollywood career. And speaking of style, you know, the glamour really starts in the 20s when she arrives. Mm -hmm. Um... How does she get there, you know, thousands of miles from where she started? Well, I mean, the short, shortest answer is that she's brought there uh, by Jesse Lasky, who's the head of production at Paramount Studios. It's about to be renamed that. Uh, and she's brought there as a, one of several so-called eminent authors. He and producer Samuel Goldwyn have a kind of competition between the two of them to try to lure famous writers, you know, from all over the world, essentially, to Los Angeles at this moment when the movie industry, you know, the American movie industry has really suddenly within just half a decade uh, coalesced around Los Angeles in this one space and then become the world's leading purveyor of motion pictures. Because, you know, the other European industries that have been fairly strong in the early 1910s were really decimated by World War I. Mm-hmm. And so like so many other industries in America, you know, the American movie industry was given a giant shot of adrenaline by World War I. So she's brought there, she stays for almost a whole decade, 10 years, and she prospers obviously. You know, even in this moment, right, where women had, white women had a great deal of influence um, in shaping the early motion picture industry behind the scenes. Even in that milieu, she again managed to stand out as the star author within a matter of months, having had no background in this business and barely ever having even seen a silent film. She really wasn't interested in the movies. She just went because they offered her an amazing contract. And, you know, she's not a very likable person in some ways. But one of the things that I really admired about her was the way that she, at this moment in time in particular, rather than, as she described it, sinking into depression again 
and feeling like she was becoming not as useful after World War One. She had had this amazing experience, you know, writing about the trenches and being a reporter in Paris while it was being bombed in World War One, and mm-hmm. really taking on this incredible public role you know, being there at the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, you know, and she writes about how she starts to see women from her class sinking into depression, as she puts it, as their opportunities for useful work dry up. So she gets this opportunity to go to Los Angeles and she goes and she just establishes herself as this doyenne, as this tastemaker, as, you know, as what I've come to think of as the first influencer, because it's not just as a writer, but it's as a mentor and a stylist, a personal stylist, along with her dressmaker, who she brings from Paris, you know, of course, Anne Morgan. She styles all the first stars, not just Bo, but stars like the first glamour queen, Gloria Swanson, and the great Latin lover, Rudolph Valentino, and... John Gilbert, you know, who she calls the Black Stallion, which he hates, <laughs> but it fits him. And, you know, she teaches them how to talk and dress and deal with the press and, you know, make love on screen in ways that are, again, more explicit than what audiences were used to seeing before, but have this glamorous, aristocratic kind of style to them, at least up through Bo. Bo's a bit different. Um, but in the early 20s, this glamorous aristocratic style is very important to kind of tamping down on this sort of nativist moral panic about this immigrant industry and the influence it's having on all these young women, (laughs) you know, who are idolizing these new heroines, right? They're also working in the industry, though. And I think that's what your first book was about right. from 10 years ago, which is that early Hollywood was actually much friendlier to younger working women and young women in general than we imagine it today, or, you know, even that it might be today. <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly. It, it's, it's, it's shocking that, you know, the statistics in some of the jobs like directing, they still haven't caught up to the percentages of women that were directing um, in the late teens and early 20s in the Hollywood studios. But in any case, yes, my first book was about that fact and and the way that it was astounding for me and some of the other folks working on this period to really learn that the the industry was built around women working, you know, women copyrighted more than half of all screenplays up through the end of the silent era in 1928 half, right? And they predominated, particularly in screenwriting, but were also incredibly much more common than they were, you know, later as directors, producers, editors, everything, you name it. Also, just the social historian in me, right? Hollywood assumed by the early 20s that women were the majority of the people in their audiences in the United States. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some of the estimates were as high as 70 or 80%. It's so interesting because I think a lot of what she contributed to Hollywood has definitely stuck around. You know, you can see it reincarnated even in Marilyn Monroe decades Mm -hmm. later Mm -hmm. or today. The idea of Hollywood glamour and glitz has never gone away, nor have, you know, the rose petals or the, the negligees or any of that stuff. But the women have, you know, and there was a definite decline after the silent era. What happened So it's a couple things, you know, one is that it really is this moment where this 
beautiful bubble just balloons suddenly. We have to remember, no one had experience with this bubble. It was this brand new thing. And so part of why women get more leeway in this industry is that no one really knew what it was becoming exactly. Uh, And almost all the the workers in the early industry had come out of theater, uh, had theatrical backgrounds. And that was an industry that actually gave women a fair amount of latitude too, right? So there, there was also that... Um, and in, in theater, as someone who studied theater ages and ages ago, right, there's you still today, you know, have to you have to if you're if you're someone who's involved in a creative part of it, you have to study a technical side and vice versa. Right. Everyone is expected to be able to do something else besides what they love. Well, you know, for me, it was hanging lights, um, but the, it's called doubling in the brass. And it's this theatrical tradition of people being sort of well-rounded because you had to be in theatrical stock companies, right? That gets translated to the early work culture of film. As Hollywood grows up to be this giant industry and as it solidifies into these giant studios, it starts to look like every other big business in America. And you don't have women in charge and in other big businesses. You don't have them running things. You don't have them calling the shots. And so I think it's important not to make Hollywood seem unusually bad. They just made their industry look like every other industry, right? In which white men were in charge of everything. And so, you know, that's that's part of what you're up against. What you're also up against in terms of the larger cultural zeitgeist is the depression and war, mm-hmm. uh, both of which really had you know, over time, over the 10 or 15 years, right, of depression and war that people then started to endure after 1930, um, you really had a retrenchment, even though women are still working in large numbers in the 30s in the depression, um, and then obviously during the war, there's a whole narrative that starts to develop around that, 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 that makes it clear that that is only okay because it's exceptional. But if there's a man that needs that job, he's more important, right? And so all these jobs that, you know, in the depression that had been female jobs get defined as male jobs. There's a real backlash starting really in the 20s, uh, even. You can start to see it, but it picks up a lot of steam in the 30s. In that light, Eleanor Glenn is all the more impressive for coming in sort of at the beginning of that backlash and having such an outsized role. What do you think her most important enduring influence has been? Well, if we look at the movers and shakers and designers and writers and costumers who crafted the glamour aesthetic that Hollywood first came up with. Glenn was one of the most important, but there were also a number of other women that were involved in that. As I mentioned, her sister was one. And they were, their audience, and we know this today, who reads fashion magazines? Mm -hmm. Mostly women. Mm -hmm. Who notices the details? Mostly women. And, you know, we, we can stereotype gay men. Uh, right? I mean, we can stereotype with this, but that's actually what the demographic data shows us. And so I think it's really important to remember that women, you know, and this was in a time when we only had two genders, but women were designing, creating this romantic aesthetic look 
based on their own sexual fantasies and frustrations. And they were doing it largely with other women audience members in mind. Those were the people. There's a great quote where Glenn is trying to get Joseph Schenck, who was a very, very important early producer, who at the time was running United Artists, to distribute a movie that she actually distributed, that she mm-hmm. um, made, directed her, her end goal. Finally, she got full control over this picture <laughs> that she made in London in 1930. And she says, you know, don't forget, I know what women want. I know what they want to see in the dark and what makes them grab their boyfriend's hand sitting there. I guess that's what I mean about it giving the lie. You know, it's true that that women dress as they do to attract male attention sometimes, but they also do it to impress other women because it is women that often really notice the stuff that that they're doing and the nuances and the details. And so, you know, she's the one that that taught Cedric Gibbon, who becomes the MGM house stylist, who designs the Oscar statue, you know, much of what he knew about a sort of European elegance that he was faking. But but, you know, but for her was real. She actually And this drove her crazy, of course, at first, right? Was that everyone was always depicting these places and they had no idea what they were doing. And they had no idea how to dress. I mean, her letters are hysterical on this point too. Um, Just the the tackiness, really, (laughs) of a lot of the early costuming because no one had been to Europe. No one had seen a country house. No one knew what real aristocrats looked like. No one, you know, I mean, they'd all become super rich, super fast doing one thing. Most of them were extremely young, you know? And so she was really one of the very few people there, along with like William Randolph Hearst, who'd actually, you know, seen real money and elegance in those kinds of settings. Um, And this is obviously what Hollywood wants to, you know, show the world is that kind of glamour. That's people eat it up. We have links in the show notes to Hilary Hallett's new book, Inventing the It Girl, how Eleanor Glynn created the modern romance and conquered early Hollywood. And since Glynn was all about the image, we have quite a few photographs of her, including that infamous one of her pretending to be the tiger lady of three weeks. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>